All right, if you would please stand and open in the Bible to page 977 in the Pew Bible uh, to Ephesians chapter 4 beginning at verse 1. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The word of the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray you'd be pleased now to send your Holy Spirit upon us, the same spirit that was at work in your servant Paul when he wrote these words. May that same gracious sovereign spirit pry open our cold hearts and give us grace, Father, that we might hear your word, believe it, obey it, and rejoice in it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I took a couple of uh, personal days of leave uh, last week to go and visit my ailing uncle in uh, Mississippi who uh, has been sick. And I took, uh, or actually my sons, William and John, took me with them. Uh, It was their initiative, their trip. And they allowed me to go along, and i got to say I had a wonderful time, of course, spending a lot of time with uh, William and John and also with my uncle. But also, we took the opportunity to kind of go and do a little bit of family exploring, and I wanted to take them to the town I'm from, which is Tupelo, Mississippi. Um, And I went out there. We're actually from suburban Tupelo, (laughs) a little tiny town called Morville. Um, the only claim Morville has to any kind of fame is that Elvis Presley's family is from Morville. And I can, I can guarantee you that because the little family cemetery where we 
went and spent some time this week. Uh, the Morville Cemetery is called um, Andrew's Chapel uh, Cemetery. And uh, in this cemetery, there are about maybe four or five different groups. Uh, there is my family. Uh, there is Elvis's family. Uh, there are some families called the Hussies and a family called the Westmorelands and then everybody else. And every other gravestone has these family connections and it's a real trip for me to go there and look around this old family cemetery. And one of the things I've always enjoyed about going back home and seeing my uh, family uh, place where we're from is that old church. It's, it's Andrew's Chapel is actually a church. It's a church with a cemetery. They used to do that. Uh, churches often had cemeteries, and uh, if you find an old cemetery here in Texas or pretty much anywhere in the country, uh, there at least at one time was a church there, and uh, that's true here in Carrollton. If you go find where Union Baptist Church stood, the first Baptist church in Dallas County, uh, you go over and you find their, their old burying ground, and there is still in the ground the foundations of where the church stood. Anyway, we're here in Morville. I'm looking around, and uh, it turns out this old church, Andrew's Chapel, which is where my family had gone back in the day, uh, that church has had a very difficult last few years. Uh, the church is uh, 180 years old, little tiny country church, uh, and they just recently, uh, about a year ago I think, made the extremely painful decision to leave the Methodist church of which they have been a part for a very long time. Uh, they had voted to withdraw from the Methodist church. It was a very costly decision, even though the Methodist denomination had not given any money for this building. It had been in this area for a very long time, long before the current church bureaucracy had anything to do with it. But in order for the church to leave, they had to pay a lot of money for them to secure the right to take the property with them. I'm, I'm just glad that the Methodist church allowed them to do it. Uh, a lot of churches, a lot of denominations don't do that. They don't let you take your property no matter what. Um, anyway, uh, it was interesting to talk to them and visit with them, especially with some of the old family connections that we've had over the years for this old church. And it just reminded me, once again, even after 180 years, the pain of leaving, the, of, of experiencing uh, a kind of division and uh, it was on my mind because last Sunday the sermon had to do with divisions and not dividing. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul had a lot to say about avoiding divisions. And I talked a lot about the, the call to avoid divisions. And I'll say it again. We are to avoid divisions. Um, however, however, there are situations where division is something that has to happen. Uh, it has to happen for gospel reasons. And I'll go so far as to say the only reason for division to exist in the church has to do with the gospel. Uh, the gospel is a non-negotiable. It's not subject to a vote by a church convention or council. It, the gospel is the gospel. It is given authority over us. We don't have authority over it. We can't vote to change it. We can't vote to water it down or make it say something that it doesn't say. The gospel is the gospel. And it is a reality that sometimes, for the gospel, a division is necessary. And that was on my mind as I went and looked at my old family haunts. Um, well, it's on my mind this morning standing in the pulpit because what Paul is going to actually talk about in this passage, we 
just read and are going to look at for a few minutes this morning has to do with the reality of godly division, godly separation. The Protestant Reformation is an example. I would say, some might argue with me, but I think probably all of us in this room are agreed that the Protestant Reformation was a division that had to happen for the sake of the gospel. And uh, so we could have a debate about that if you wanted to. But I, I think uh, that the evangelical gospel was obscured in the Middle Ages and a division was necessary. And there are many other examples we could talk about how division is something sadly necessary for the sake of the gospel. Well, uh, that's kind of the background. Uh, at, at least let me put it this way. The subject matter gives rise to the reality of godly division, godly separation. What Paul's writing in this passage gives rise to the sad but inevitable result that sometimes division is necessary. Now, let me give you a very, very brief introduction to Ephesians. Uh, some of you know Ephesians well. Others of you may not. Uh, let me just briefly tell you a few things that are interesting about and unusual about the book of Ephesians. Uh, of Paul's 13 letters, four were written to individuals. Nine of them were written to churches. And most of these churches had been founded on Paul's three missionary journeys. Most of his letters were written to churches that he helped found. And his letters typically address problems that had developed in each specific church. That's the standard pattern of Paul's letters. We saw it in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians last Sunday. We see it in Philippians. We see it in some of his other letters. Uh, the letter is addressing a very specific church context. Well, Ephesians is different. First, in Ephesians, there is, there's a lack of local references. I, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, looking at uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, how there were lots of personal references. Well, Ephesians lacks those personal references. It doesn't have particular problems, local situations that uh, usually interested Paul. He's not writing with a specific set of issues to discuss regarding something happening there in Ephesus. Um, second, uh, it has 55 verses that are very, very similar to Colossians. Uh, it's unusual. Paul didn't often repeat himself word for word. And, and yet, uh, Ephesians has 55 verses that are very similar to Colossians. No other two Pauline letters have this much in common, so it's unusual. And thirdly, very significantly, there are ancient copies of the book of Ephesians that do not have the word Ephesus in it. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1 it says to the saints who are in Ephesus there are several very very ancient in fact some of the oldest manuscripts of the letter of Paul that we call to the Ephesians it doesn't actually have this uh, script in it. It doesn't actually say to the saints who are in Ephesus. It just uh, doesn't have that text in it. Well, the result is scholars have figured out and have put forward the theory, and this makes sense to me, that Ephesians, unlike some of his other letters, Ephesians was written as what is called a circular letter. In other words, this was a letter Paul wrote very generally, not only for the church in Ephesus, which apparently may have been the first church to receive the letter, but it actually had application to, to a lot of different churches. In fact, there were something like 200 churches near Ephesus, 
And there are examples of that circular letter, letter to the Ephesians is what we call it, making its rounds through all of these churches. So what makes Ephesians very interesting is it's got broad and extremely general application. Uh, it's Paul thinking big about the church, not just one individual church by which you can deduce more general application. This letter is written with the intention of general application. So if we're really going to understand it, we've got to understand that what Paul is writing here has very broad, very general application, not only to Ephesus, not only to the first century church, but to us. Uh, you could say that this circular letter was written as much to us, in a way, uh, as it was to the Ephesians. You could say uh, to the saints who are in Carrollton, to the saints uh, on Hebron Parkway. This is Paul's letter to us too. That makes it interesting and very, I think, uh, particularly helpful as we think through some of the applications. He intended it this way. So I want to bring you three points from chapter 4 of very, very broad application. It's not speaking to any one particular set of circumstances. So there are infinite exceptions, really. There are all kinds of different exceptions. But he's bringing some general principles that apply there and apply here. And I'd like you to have these in mind as we think about this reality of challenges in the church in the year of grace 2022. What are some of the challenges that we face? Well, what was happening here in the world that Paul was generally addressing is happening today. I want to bring you three points. Unity is a goal. Unity is a gift. And finally, unity is the ground for mission and ministry. First point, unity as a goal. Uh, Paul uses the word urge in verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Uh, that's an expression Paul uses elsewhere. He uses the same language over in Philippians generally to talk about living a life worthy of the gospel. And I guess... On my own, if I were to read those words, I would think about my moral life. I'd, I'd think about the moral life that you and I live, that we'd want to live a life uh, that showed um, observance of the moral part of the Christian life, a life worthy of, um, of the gospel, a life worthy of our calling, would, would be a life that was uh, in accord with God's moral law, that uh, we tried to avoid lying we tried to avoid coveting like we saw in the uh, passage this morning from the catechism we'd avoid those moral behaviors that bring discredit to the gospel and that's certainly true and Paul had a lot to say about that but interestingly here that's not what Paul is focusing on what does he mean by a, a life that is worthy of the calling to which we've been called well look at verse 2 what he means by that is a life with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. As Paul is writing this letter, and he, he urges, he calls, he exhorts the church to live a life worthy of the calling to which we've been called, what he focuses on is actually our unity. 
We are called to unity. We're called to uh, have the behaviors that contribute to unity. Behaviors like humility and gentleness and patience. Uh, Those aren't exactly moral behaviors. There's not a Ten Commandment that says uh, you're to have humility and gentleness. You can deduce it. It applies. But it's not a not one of the Ten Commandments that commands that moral behavior. What, what actually Paul is saying is our life being worthy of the gospel, worthy of our, our calling, means we are we're putting up with each other. We're, we're being gentle with each other. We're being humble towards one another. Uh, and he, he can't avoid the word love. He says bearing with one another in love. That's meant to characterize our life. That's living a life worthy of of our calling. It's living a life of patience, gentleness, and love. And verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So this, this unity as a goal means that we are together learning unity. We're, we're learning Christ-like unity. We're learning to put up with each other, to bear one another's eccentricities and limitations and sinfulness and brokenness, all those things. We're learning to put up with that. We're learning to tolerate one another and love one another in spite of those things. And you know, living a life that morally reflects the gospel is tough, but living a life that reflects this Christ-like unity is much tougher because it is so opposed to our own natural way of thinking about things the way I think is a very Bill Lovell centered view of the universe I've got a very Bill Lovell centered way of looking at most things and Paul's saying we've got to repent of that Bill you've got to repent of that the world doesn't revolve around Bill Lovell. And, and the older I get, the more I realize that. Uh, Leslie reminds me occasionally. Uh, the world doesn't revolve around me. The world doesn't revolve around you. And we're learning that together. And what we're actually learning is that, that dying to self is a big part of what it means to grow as a disciple of Jesus. To be humble like he was humble to be patient and gentle like he is patient and gentle and to do it all in love. And I can't think of anything harder to do on a day-to-day basis than doing like that with God's people, learning to put up with each other and tolerate each other and forgive each other. And Paul has this vision, this idea, this goal for the whole church. We're all to have this goal. We're all to have this attitude of of putting other people first. Um, But you know, the funny thing is, unity is what everybody wants, but nobody seems to agree on, right? We all want it, but we don't agree on it. We're, We're not united on unity. We want it in our country, we want it in our family, we want it in our church, and yet we don't agree on it. We, we have sometimes very intense arguments about it. 
What does it even mean? What does it look like? What is a church for? What is a church like? What, are we, what is Metrochrist supposed to be? What is Metrochrist supposed to do? And we can disagree about it. And Paul's saying to Metrochrist, as he said to the church in Ephesus, we're to love each other through that. We're to think it through and debate it and discuss it and pray about it and explore and try and fail and get up and try again. And there's this picture of this organic unity around the truth that we're all working towards. Unity is a goal. I love the word he uses, urge. He urges us to do this. And I think he's urging us to do it here at Metrocrest as we're starting a new year together. Uh, what a great thing to be reminded of this Lenten season, the, the call, the urge to be united as a goal, a specific goal, united. Uh, in his comments on, on this chapter, Ephesians chapter for a commentator, Skip Moen, writes these words. He says, Paul is pointing us toward a last stop. He wants us to see that the end of the line will bring us to oneness. How can this ever happen, you might ask? Only through submission, humility, and service, one person at a time. Life today is broken, but it, all, it won't always be that way. Today, our broken and splintered lives must become the intersections where we embrace other broken and splintered lives in order that we can mend each other into the unity of followers of the man broken for us. If you think that you can glue yourself back together, you're sadly mistaken. Life is broken on purpose. It is broken in order to force us into community. We find unity in the cracks and the crevices. Where we are broken, we are the same. We are one. Perhaps we need a new theology or a new way of expressing theology, a theology of brokenness, a theology that recognizes that unity com comes from being shattered vessels, not perfect pots. That's the unity that Paul is urging on the church. He actually uses that kind of language in describing life in the church, that, that we're, we, we are actually to be united as we work together uh, towards this goal. So a unity as a goal. Secondly, um, unity is a gift. Look at verses 8 to 13. Paul says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Of course, Paul, as he always does, uh, turns to the scriptures. He, he pulls a passage out of the Bible to, to give voice to this, uh, uh, to, to describe this gift that God gives us. Uh, he says, in, he gives his own little miniature explanation. In, ascending, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also had descended into the lower regions of the earth. Who, who's the he? He is Jesus, right? He is Jesus. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So Paul has unity as a goal, but here he's describing unity as a gift. How does God, how does the Lord 
How does Jesus give us unity? He doesn't zap us with a magic wand and uh, magically produce unity. What he instead does is infinitely more difficult and infinitely more uh, painstaking and deep. He actually gives people. He puts people in our lives. I like what Skip Moen says, that one of the reasons brokenness is not an accident is because it forces us together. And in that context of that kind of unity in brokenness, people become a great gift. The the gifting of the Holy Spirit in your life is a gift to me and to all of us. The way the Holy Spirit has gifted you is a gift not just for you, it's a gift for all of us. That's that's the gift of Jesus. The way he is building unity in his church is through people. That's how he's doing it. By by gifting each of us with spirit-empowered giftedness that we then use to minister to other people. And he singles out a few people here. He he applies it very broadly uh, in verse 8 and 9 and 10, uh, all things, uh, he, he talks about all things. But in verse 11, he talks about giving apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds or, or uh, pastors or, or even elders um, and teachers to equip the saints of the work, for the work of ministry. See, the way the Lord is building this unity is he, he gifts his church, he gives all of us in the church his spirit, gives us gifts, gives us abilities that we share with other people, and he gives us leaders. He gives us leaders. He, he, he singles them out. He talks about the apostles, this once-for-all special gift of people who are gifts to all of us. The, the Bible is the fruit of the gift of the apostles given to the church to to write down, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, what they had learned from Jesus. Their gift to all of us. The prophets are a gift to all of us. The the Old Testament prophets and, and all the prophets are gifts from the Lord to his people to help us find this gifted this gift of unity. The evangelists, those who, who shared the gospel uh, with Paul and with you and me and and the, the, the shepherds and the teachers, he, he gives us one another. Uh, we have a, a great group of officers here at Metrocrest. God has been very good to us. Jesus has been very good to us by giving us broken, sinful leaders who know and love the Lord Jesus and want to help you and me to know and love the Lord Jesus. Uh, this morning, we had our 9 o'clock officers training class little group of guys who get together every Sunday morning and we work our way through a couple of books and talking about life and talking about how the scriptures apply to life. And I got to tell you, I look so forward to this little class every Sunday. Uh, we get around and, and we, we share what we're learning from the Bible, what we've learned in our walk with Christ. Well, that's a, that is a gift to you. That is a gift from Jesus to you. And again, it takes time. It's in-depth. It's not something that just happens. It's, it's something that, that the Lord does patiently. He's patiently raising up this group of people 
that he is gifting to us. And I'm so grateful for the men who have been giving up hours and hours already to get together and, and learn about being that gift to the church. And we talked today about uh, a shepherding model of eldership. Uh, uh, John Fowler's uh, very distinguished dad, Paul Fowler, is going to come and help us think through what a shepherding eldership at Metrocrest might look like. We had one in the past. We want to do it again. We want, we want to do exactly what Ephesians 4 is talking about. We want elders and deacons too who are, who are gifted and trained and raised up and equipped to, to do exactly what they're intended to do. And look at the way it's described in verse 12. What is their job? They're, they're not a business committee. Their job isn't to balance budgets. That's a little tiny part of their job. Their job, verse 12, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the church. It's you and me. It's all of us. Until verse 13, we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Boy, Paul's at his most eloquent in describing the ministry of shepherding elders, shepherding leaders, who specifically see their job building up the church, not managing building decisions and, and all those things. I'm not saying they're unimportant, but actually who see their ministry primarily in terms that have very little to do with a building or a budget. It has everything to do with the Holy Spirit. It has everything to do with working with other broken sinners to grow in Christ until they become, until we become more and more and more like Jesus. And that's what we're aiming for. Pray for us. Pray for these men. Uh, they're sitting here in the room right now. Uh, I'm very grateful to them for being willing to do this. I hope God continues to raise up leaders as gifts for the church. We depend on his gifts and there is no gift that we depend on more than the leaders that he raises up to serve his church in this way. That's how we find unity. True unity is available through these leaders who've been raised up. Because their job is not to make you feel good. Their job is to help you become more like Christ. We're having a special uh, training conference on Saturday from 1 to 5.30 in the afternoon here at Metrocrest. Our deacons, uh, Dalton Dallas is the, the uh, organizing deacon, working with other deacons here at Metrocrest and at New St. Peter's PCA over in Dallas. Uh, they've been putting their heads together. This was their initiative to organize a day where deacons and anybody who's interested in mercy ministry can come together and study the Bible and think together under the power of the Holy Spirit about what it means to do this. How do we live this out? I can't wait to see what the Lord leads us to do through this gifted bunch of leaders. And you're invited, by the way. It's free of charge. It's open to anybody who's interested in mercy ministry. If you're interested in learning about the ministry of mercy, and that's just the angle they, they're focusing on, the very important angle of mercy ministry. How do we minister in Christ's name to the needy world where he's put us. If you want to know more about that, it's at 1 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. Come along. We'd love to have you right here in this room. If you can't make it, we're hoping to record it, and we'll make it available to those who'd like to uh, participate that way. 
But, you know, that's Jesus' gift to us. That's him working through these leaders. Uh, it's certainly not me. It's, it's not our denomination. It's the Spirit of the Lord leading us into this unity that he wants us to have. A, a wonderful, Jesus-honoring unity that's all about maturity like in Christ. So, uh, you know, if you want to figure out what to do about disunity, uh, make it your goal to be united. And secondly, pray for the gift of unity, the spirit which leads us and the spirit which inspires leaders, and we'll experience unity. I told the men this morning, I said, you know, if you've ever experienced and if you've ever had an experience of disunity, if you've ever experienced maybe not getting everything from the church that you wish you'd gotten, if that's ever been something you've lived through, then you're the answer to the church's prayer. These leaders, these men willing to come and think about it and try to do it, they're the answer to the prayer. And you might well be the answer to the prayer. As, as the Lord leads Metrocrest into this unity in Christ, you may be the answer to your own prayer. You may be the answer to the church's prayer. Your, your willingness to serve, your willingness to help do exactly what Jesus wants you to do. And there's a third point. Unity as the ground for mission and ministry. Uh, and this is so important, especially as we look at the reality of disunity. Something that I've acknowledged from the beginning of this sermon. Look at what Paul has to say beginning in verse 14. He says he, he wants the church to have this unity, verse 14, so that we may, may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Now, if you've lived in the church for very long, if you've observed church life in 2022, I'm not really necessarily meaning Metrocrest. If you just look around at what is happening in the, the church in the world, well, I, I got to tell you, I see a lot of human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Um, my friends at Andrews Chapel Methodist Church over in Morville, Mississippi, they experience cunning and deceitfulness, winds of doctrine that, that actually lead away from the gospel, lead away from the person and work of Christ. It's, it's an interesting expression, a wind of doctrine. There's the, the whole the breath of the Spirit, there's the wind of doctrine that sweeps through the church. And uh, I've got some little grandkids who I love to the moon and back. We're having William's birthday party this afternoon. But they're little and they're, they're vulnerable. They're vulnerable. They, they get moved around and swept along. And I mean, we talked about tornadoes and being prepared for disasters. Well, there, there are real tornadoes that come ripping through buildings. And there are spiritual tornadoes that come ripping through churches. And Paul is saying, Paul is saying we want to create, create a ground 
of unity that will make it possible for us to not be like vulnerable children, but to actually be grounded in deep, mature truth so that we can withstand the winds that come sweeping around us. We want to create a safe environment for our little ones to grow up. We want, in the Sunday school, I know this is exactly what Gwen is aiming to do every Sunday, is to teach our little ones the truth because they're going out into a crazy, messed up world. And it will not be long before they're going off to college and first jobs and getting married and interacting with a crazy society. And we want our little ones, our children, to be raised up in the truth. So they have this ground on which they can make intelligent, informed, godly decisions. And what we want for our children is what we want for ourselves. We want our congregation to be grounded not into things that come sweeping through the flavor of the month, the the particular angle that that people are talking about today. They won't be talking about it tomorrow. They weren't talking about it yesterday, but it's the flavor today, and we get all focused on that. And we, We don't want Christianity to be like that, just sort of flipped around and blown around by the winds of doctrine, deceitful crafty one of the challenges facing every single church in the year of grace 2022 is this reality of being doctrinally deceived doctrinally deceived i was reading about a survey they had done of evangelical christians of evangelical christians and it was incredible i think it was 40 percent we're not convinced that Jesus is God. In one survey I read about. And I can tell you my own experience in pastoral ministry over many years is that people can go to evangelical churches for a long time and have the craziest ideas. Including about moral things. I mean, I think our society is absolutely so confused about morality. Sexual morality, gender identity, gender roles. We're confused. Young Christians are so, uh, they're just so vulnerable and so exposed. They don't know what they're talking about. They've got very loud voices trying to convince them of lies and deceive them. And so many of us, so many of our people, including our young people, are vulnerable. They don't know. Send these kids off to college and it seems like so often they come back, they've lost their way. They don't don't know what to think of Jesus. They don't know what to think of the Bible. They don't know what to think about the Holy Spirit. They're just confused. Well, Paul wanted to, to see in the church and by the Spirit was led to help you and me to see that what we want is actual unity in the truth. That's what that's what he describes. He wants us to be, to attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Rather, speaking the truth in love. You see, isn't that a beautiful way of describing it? I, I was taught at one point that, that you have a kind of a spectrum. Over here you have truth, over here you have love. 
And some churches are too loving and some churches are too focused on truth. They get too rigid and legalistic and some churches get too sentimental and squishy. And you want to be on this spectrum, so you want to be somewhere in the middle. What an unhelpful way of thinking about it. Right, you cannot be too loving. You cannot be too committed to the truth. You can have many, many other problems. You can be squishy and overly sentimental, and you can be rigid and legalistic, but it's not because you're too committed to truth. Now, the, the call that Paul's describing is not a spectrum where truth's at one end, love's at the other end. He's talking about one. They're not options. We're to be 100% truthful and 100% loving. Or to make that our goal, our aim, our aspiration, our dream, our prayer. That we would grow in truthfulness, grow in understanding the truth. And at the same time, and as an expression of the truth, to grow in love. So you can't be too committed to the truth or too committed to love. But you can be wildly confused and wildly deceived about both. You can reduce Christianity to a bunch of doctrinal things that you can mouth with no love or you can have sentiment and squishiness and being real nice to people and never get the truth. But actually the most loving thing you can do is commit yourself to the truth of the gospel. That is true love. And the most um, truthful thing you can do, the most the thing most grounded in the truth of the gospel is to show the love of Jesus. So Paul says, speak the truth in love. Keep them together. Insist that they go together. Insist at Metrocrest that we never allow a gulf between love and truth. The minute we buy into that model, we have started down the wrong path. Insist. Pray for Work for unity in the truth, in the love of Jesus Christ. And Paul describes it. That's how verse 16, the whole body is joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, that's the unity that Paul's talking about. That's the unity I'm praying for at Andrew's Chapel. That's the unity I'm praying for here. Sometimes to have that kind of gospel unity, you may have to separate yourself from a group or an institution or a relationship. That, that, that is a thing. It is a painful reality. I think I've lived through it. I think y'all have lived through it. We've lived through that kind of thing. We know what it is to separate because of the gospel. But let's create here at Metrocrest a ground of unity. And it's actually in that ground of unity, in the truth, in love, that we're now able to do the ministry, the mission that Jesus has entrusted to his church. That's the unity that, that we are able, on the basis of, to, to do the work of Christ in the world that he wants us to do. We can't do it from a, a position where there's no unity in the truth. If we're, if we're uncommitted to the gospel, if we're not committed to the truth of the gospel, then what we come up with will, will be a band-aid at best. At best, a little band-aid. And often much worse. But when we're united in Jesus, when we're united in the truth of the scriptures... 
then we have the ground for doing the work Jesus wants us to do. Let me close with a couple of words of application. Uh, we're very committed to doctrine here at Metrochrist. Um, Colin Day is leading a brilliant adult Bible class. And he chose the subject. It's going up until Easter on the cross of Christ. And I've made it to a couple of classes myself. I'm often tied up getting ready for the service or teaching a class. I've made it to a couple. And he is walking through the different aspects of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Can you think of a more important doctrine to think about together going through Lent into Easter than the cross of our Savior? It's every Sunday at 9 o'clock. We have care groups. They pray, they share fellowship, and they discuss in light of the scriptures the reality of our day. They talk about it and reflect on it biblically. Um, We have materials. I want to offer you, I will give you a copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith. We say the catechism here most Sundays. I will give you your own personal copy of the Confession of Faith if you don't have one. Take it home with you, read it. Uh, It is brilliant because we believe it reflects the scriptures. That's what we believe. You want to debate it, we'll debate it with you. We'll talk about it, we'll answer questions. But that's what we believe and why we want to share it with you humbly and in love. We want to give you that. We have multiple copies. I will give you copies. And if you have questions or things you want to discuss, we are here to discuss them with you. Because we don't define ourselves by our Presbyterianism, but we are committed to teaching the truth as we understand it. We're committed to that. We're working together for that. That's what all of our leaders are aiming to do. That's what they're training to do and what we want to see all of our leaders always do. So we want to do what I'm talking about. We want to do what Paul's describing in his circular letter to the Ephesians. We want to, to build that unity in the truth. Build it based on patience and humility and putting up with each other. Asking questions. There's no out-of-bounds questions. No out-of-bounds questions. You can ask a question. We'll talk about it. We won't hate you for asking it. Whatever it is, we'll talk to you about it. Because that's the kind of unified community we're called to have. I believe that's the kind of community God will bless. That's the kind of community he is raising up. That's the kind of church he wants to serve this neighborhood. That's what I want to see the kids see at VBS and our little ones at Sunday school, to see that unity in love, in the truth.